Welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and find out what a life and career in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode we're joined by technologist, educator, and computer scientist, Will Billingsley. Will, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Will. <laughs> Pleasure for you to be here. We're in my office. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's a delightful office. It's good. <laughs> Now, you're here teaching computer science yes. at the University of New England. Not being a, a computer scientist or having done a computer science degree, I was wondering, how important is it that a, a student walks out of here fluent in some sort of programming language as opposed to simply understanding the capabilities of coding and how to manage it? So for us, it's very important, but that's partly because of who our students are. So there's, there's a huge variety of technology degrees out there these days because technologies, uh, years and years ago, there was uh, Mark Andreessen that uh, runs now Andreessen Horowitz venture capital firm in the US, uh, but was the guy that did the Netscape browser for anyone that's old enough to remember the Netscape browser. Oh yeah, I um, forgot that existed. <laughs> after Netscape evaporated, he <laughs> took his millions and became a venture capitalist. But uh, So he did this article in, I think it was the New Yorker, uh, that was about software is eating the world. And it was about how every industry is being taken over by software companies. But that was like seven years ago. So it is now we're in the, the software has long since eaten the world. And just about every company ends up getting defined by technology and data science and all of these things. And so there's technology imbued in loads and loads of different careers, but um, uh, which means that there's lots and lots of different technology degrees out there. But our one is still quite centered on people being able to being able to code. And that's partly because we get a lot of off-campus students who are uh, actually already doing that as a job. They took different things when they were an undergrad and they kind of did the thing that uh, you often do when you're 19 where you could do lots of things and you're not quite sure but you've got to pick what you go to university to do and you do something and then go, well, I'm not sure about this. But someone then goes and gives you a job and you start working in industry doing programming stuff and then go, ah, oh, later on, I think I ought to get the degree in this. Mm. And so we have, um, yeah, quite quite a lot of students who are actually already in jobs that involve programming and so we need to both be able to stretch them as well as introducing the next generation of coders coming through and um, yeah there's massive variety in our courses but we, we, we do try and hit the hit the coding stuff early right. uh, so that you've got that as a, uh, a core skill under your belt that then lets you explore everything else through code and so we hear a lot about coding and having coding as a skill as being I guess the future-proof method for being employable and being a productive member of society in the future. Is, is that still the case, do you think? Um, yeah, sort of, sort mm. of. Um, I think it's very important to understand what it's about. Um, there's not really just one way of coding anymore, mm. though. And there's a lot of things that we do that we don't think of as coding that kind of are. Um, so... Uh, at the moment, there's all of these, you know, the, the, the latest technology craze is all the digital assistants, the series, the, the voice interfaces, mm. the Google Homes, etc. And those, uh, at the moment, they've got somewhat limited capability. They can understand certain things, but uh, those are getting better all the time. And so you're, you're still kind of looking at the Star Trek vision of the future where you can go, computer, do such and such <laughs> for me, etc. And, well, in those cases, you're... Um, you're giving instructions to a machine and okay at the moment they're fairly immediate instructions and they're not terribly complicated but they can become 
more complicated. They become, can become more involved over time. And uh, when I'm teaching kids uh, in schools, sometimes doing outreach stuff for programming, I kind of remind them, well, you might not have programmed a computer before, but you probably programmed a human before. And you probably can program them in very uh, complicated ways, such as them asking you, how do I get to the train station? You're saying, mm. well go two blocks down and turn right at the traffic lights and then when you see the church turn left and mm. and so you're even doing programming that's in future contexts when you see the church <laughs> then do such and such um so in everyday language in our interface for working with the world um we talk in quite abstract ways and we're trying these days to get computers to be able to do more and more of that and so for the people who are coming through who are not directly working in software engineering jobs, it's probably more important to uh, understand all the, the, the computer science things of how these things work, the computational concepts, etc., rather than necessarily the syntax of a programming language. Um, but there's always going to be an ever-increasing demand for people who do understand quite deeply the syntax and uh, the ways that programming languages work, because um, generally speaking, when companies hire someone to build their technology and companies are getting defined more and more by their technology, they often care so much about your technical skills that they don't end up actually caring so much about the the domain skills of the industry you're in. So uh, a while ago, we were we were looking at this question of there's all this stuff in ag tech and in precision agriculture. What are the jobs like that going to be in the future? And there's this question of are there going to be ones that are going to involve knowing, knowing an awful lot about agriculture and an awful lot about um, uh, programming? But if you look at the job adverts that are out there at the moment from even the ag tech startups, when they're hiring the programmers to build their back-end systems, they don't tend to list the agriculture side mm. in, the, um, in, in, the, in the job points that they're asking the engineers to, to respond to. And partly that's chicken and egg thing because there's not a lot of software engineers out there that mm. understand agriculture. Uh, but it's also because when these companies start to get bigger, it's not that they have 100 people who understand agriculture and technology. They have people who understand agriculture, they have people who understand uh, bits of both, and they have an awful lot of, lot of people who are building the technology whose main job is to understand building technology really well mm. and to be able to then talk to the agriculture people to, uh, to, to bring that side into it. So uh, is it ridiculous to sort of envisage a future where people that are your hardcore scripters writing languages as sort of the the blue collar joes of the future where where they they sort of you know, the bricklayers and the, the hole diggers of the tech to, companies i used to work with a guy who um uh i was a research engineer at nixa before i came here and next to me there was this other research engineer who uh the the company was doing his business cards mm. and uh there was a question as to what we put on our business cards <laughs> because <laughs> some of the job titles were a bit esoteric. And uh, he was trying to convince them to put digital bricklayer <laughs> on, on his card. Um, uh, realistically, though, uh, I think it's a little bit different. Um, the, I don't think it'll ever be considered blue collar, if you know what I mean. Mm. I think there's certainly lots of them, and it's certainly important to building the world. Uh, but I don't think we're going to get to a state where anyone's going to be wanting to... Um, if you like, take away the prestige from it. I think people, as they care more about technology, they, they care particularly about getting good ones. And so mm. they, they, they 
they seem to care quite a lot about um, not saying, oh, well, you're just blue collar and we're white collar or anything like that, if you know what I mean. Uh, not that I mean to anything against blue collar. <laughs> well, but they are, in, I guess, kind of a gatekeeper position. They, they are very powerful people to have, people that know how to use these skills. And I feel like, you know, you say you do lots of kids outreach. Sometimes I feel like this stuff sold to kids as, if you know how to code, you could be the next Zuckerberg or you could be the next Elon Musk well, and stuff. Could. But... <laughs> or you could be a, a code monkey. <laughs> what, what, what? <laughs> Just come down to the person themselves. Um, partly. I mean, the um, being the next Zuckerberg is about starting a company, and because uh, he, he's the person that you know, it, it's not just that he built the technology; he also then founded a company. And uh, but that is a jump that lots of people can make. I, I know about six people who are. Uh, are now or have at one stage been the CEO of a startup they just mm. did. Um, I've been sitting, you know, I've I think I've been office mate to four of them at some point. <laughs> I, I'm a hopeless underachiever compared to the people that I know. There's all these people that are off running companies and famous things around the world. And uh, meanwhile, but uh, I, I, I'm teaching. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you don't have to fess it up here, but I'm guessing you've got your plan B in the back pocket or the next great... App per program that's just about to make a zillion dollars. Well, I've got thing, I've got things <laughs> that I'd like to start, but the thing with doing a startup is the the giving up the day job, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And so uh, it's one of those things that's not great if you've got young kids, because if you've got <laughs> young kids and you're the only person bringing in an income, then it feels very risky, and not even just a personal risk, but a risk to your family. Yeah. To, give up the, the the regular check to do that yeah um so i'm one of those people that's been along to lots of um things that are you know, startup weekends and events that are involved in creating uh startups uh but hasn't necessarily been in a position to make the jump and so mm. instead i create crazy technology in a, in a university and yeah. try and release bits of it open source and find ways to make it useful but not necessarily find ways immediately to make it commercial it is kind of a Tech equivalent of quitting your job and saying, I'm going to give this rock stardom thing a go. Let's see how it turns out. <laughs> well, it, it depends, actually. So all of the ones that I've known have been successful. So mm. the, there's these statistics that, you know, 1% of um, startups survive however long. Um, but of the ones that have been started by colleagues I've known, uh, none of them have what you called failed. Uh, there's lots that have then been acquired. One um, that was just recently acquired, Sandra Mao, that uh, used to, I used to work with at Nicta, started a place called Trademark Vision that um, did computer vision techniques for finding uh, similar trademarks. How do you, um, if you're wanting to create a logo for your company and you're wanting to trademark that logo, how do you find if it's close to another company's oh. logo? And so it's kind of a, a visual search question. And so they've just been acquired. And so that company theoretically no longer exists. But that company was acquired for presumably millions of dollars more than it was created <laughs> for. Um, similarly, someone when I was doing my PhD, uh, PhD on one, one's, one office next door one way was a guy that started a company that... Uh, got sold to link it in for i think that was for 15 million or something uh, sorry you never hear the actual numbers you only hear rumors <laughs> of the numbers if you know what i mean um and so that one again theoretically no longer exists but it would be very hard to call that a failure you know yeah. oh, i failed i only 
I only sold my company for fifteen million dollars or whatever. Yeah, if you could do that once, I'd, I'd probably retire. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like I could stretch out fifteen million for a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I think one of the things that I was trying to work out. So, what is it that made those ones succeed? Where there's these statistics of most of them failing, and so one of the things I kind of think is that they didn't have a a rush to start. Um, mm. Often you'll get people who decide, I want to do a startup. Mm. And that's the thing that drives them. Uh, but they don't really know what it is yet. And so they go along and then they've got some, they've got some funding. And then mm. the clock's ticking on their idea because that funding's going to run out. Mm. And then the thing's either going to get more funding, in which case it needs to have got some runs on the board, or it's going to evaporate. Um, but in their case, because they got to work on the idea in a university environment or a research centre environment before, beforehand, they had a whole period when the clock wasn't ticking on their idea. Mm. And they had a pretty good idea that this was going to succeed before, mm. they, uh, before they went on with it. And then it did. So that, that's interesting because there's so many different accelerators and incubators and that popping up there. Yeah. You're given, what, six months to hit the ground running and make things happen? Yeah. Is that then necessarily a good idea or...? Well, it means that... um, Because a lot of places that go into incubators, I think, again, the ones that succeed are the ones that had actually already been working on it beforehand. Mm. And so these incubators, they're, they're accelerating the idea. They're bringing in the um, the advice, the access to capital, the the things that help to turn this from a, a garage effort into a company. Mm. Um, but they're, what they're not supplying is uh, your market, your, yes, mm. that's actually going to work. That's not going to work, yeah. you know what I mean? Uh, you're, you're still the custodian of your of your idea, of, behind, of your unique value proposition behind your business. And so I think the ones that have a higher success rate tend to be the ones that already have been working on it a bit before they go into them. Uh, but the incubator themselves would know that much better than the kind of <laughs> person on the sidelines. Yeah, I feel like that's true of lots of things. I mean, it's kind of this, I don't know, the Australian Idol effect of... of how we view success. You know, we hear the stories of well, the Twitters is. and the Facebooks that explode the very rapidly and we think that that's the only way to succeed. Whereas this sort of incremental, you know, getting notches in your belt, just stick with it way of going seems to yeah. really be better. Yeah, well, sort of. I mean, some of them are... So I happen to know one of the people that was behind Raspberry Pi and things like that. So some of, some of these do get quite well known. Um, but the... Um, I think the reason that you end up with this kind of unicorn situation is that the the internet is almost naturally monopolistic. Mm. Um, If you think of car companies, you can probably rattle off a list of, oh, yes, here's like 10, 15 different car companies around the world. If you think of search engines, I think you'll have trouble getting past three. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There is no high street that you walk down on the internet. You're Mm. not constantly confronted by the competing brands um you're you're seeing the adverts that people are paid to put in front of you um though very often those seem to get tuned so that as soon as you've looked at a product on the on the shop then you will forever see adverts for that product (laughs) because one of the leading indicators that you're going to buy this product is having already looked at it anyway and so then they just keep sticking it in front of you Mm. um uh but yeah so so i think there is that little bit of a an effect goes on also that um 
the large tech companies, they used to almost have a scorched earth policy where they would try and um, uh, basically they'd try and dominate a space to the extent that if things looked like getting close to them, they would either buy them or introduce their own thing to outcompete them for free. Mm. And they were incredibly protective about 10 years ago. I think that's kind of died off now. Um, but I think that also made it quite hard to be a small player. Mm-hmm. And so in my online stalking of you before the Ooh. podcast, uh, I noticed on your website you describe yourself as a tech creator. And you know, whereas I might be a bit behind on my coding and, and my tech, I, I get creating. I get that desire to follow through with a bizarre idea that you've had. Yeah. And I feel like coding is, is no different to the, the stupid stuff I might do with you know, paints and clay, where the desire to work on an idea you've had and something you're passionate about is what drives it. Whereas if you're given a job to do by someone else that could require the same tools, but because it's not something you care about, yeah. it's a lot harder to get finished. Yeah, Having been a, a tech creator, but then also someone that's worked in industry and been given tasks... Mm. How have you managed that? So, well, I guess that was how I ended up in a university, was <laughs> I, I used to be in industry and I got bored. <laughs> um, um, no, I, I, after I did my undergrad, I mean, way back when I was, because my, my dad's a professor of robotics, and so I grew up with computers and robots around the house. And so when I hit the 18, 19, what do I want to do stage, I almost felt a moral obligation to explore things that weren't computing because, you know, mm. am I just going to follow my dad's footsteps and have a smaller version of his career? Um, and I got this summer job that was uh, for a CRC that does manufacturing. And I thought, all right, okay, this is good. It's a kind of engineering, which is still interesting, still up my street, but it's a, it's a different thing. It's, mm. it's not the coding stuff. And the thing that they wanted me to do when I was there was they'd got this six-axis water jet cutter and they were interested in being able to do rapid prototyping. But rather than like 3D printing, as it is now, that's of small things, they wanted to do of a of a, of a skiff, of a boat. Mm. Um, and so they, what they wanted to do was they wanted to be able to cut out slices of foam on the water jet cutter and glue them together. And so would I mind writing this program on this thing that was going to control the water jet cutter? And so I kind of almost threw my hands up in the air. It was very interesting. I kind of, it was like, yep, yep, I am doomed to end up being in the, <laughs> in the computing stuff. So I may as well just go with it. Um, and afterwards, I worked as an engineer for a company in Brisbane that does software for phone companies and also the German railway system. Now, they've, they've been a very quiet success there. Um, but they were in the telco industry and the dot-com crunch, uh, as well as it being the dot-com crunch that meant that all of the tech companies around the place were finding that they didn't have any money, there was at the same time one that hit the telephone industry because all of the telephone companies had overbid on the 3G licenses and suddenly no longer had any money to spend. <laughs> and so everything got really conservative and a bit dull for a while. And there I was wanting to create crazy things and in a company that was like, no, no, we've got to just do this stuff that was serving our customers for, you know, for a period. And the chance came up to go and do a PhD, um, which, and kind of take the academic route, uh, for which it seemed as though do something interesting is part of the job description. Mm. And so um, I, 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 I pursued that. And after I got my PhD, on the other hand, 
uh, academic careers, at least in the early stages, feel very precarious. So when I was doing my PhD, there was someone across the corridor from me who was still a postdoc at 40. And so in that situation, you're on contingent funding. And if the next tranche of funding for your project doesn't come up, uh, well, you're also very specialised. And so you're likely to have to move cities, possibly countries, to mm. keep going in that particular area. And my wife and I were looking to have children. And it's like, ooh, is that a great situation? And so I kind of hedged my bets and I got this job at uh, NICTA where I was a research engineer. And so it was still on the research side, but it still had engineer in the title. So that if um, the funding evaporated, I could pursue industry jobs, not just academic jobs. Um, although all that hedging turned out to be somewhat unnecessary because I then got an academic job. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so it was this totally unplanned journey that went mm-hmm. from the fact that, yeah, I, I was uh, a little bit... Um, eventually, one, once you get good at the coding, it's, at least for me, writing the code's not the most interesting part. Mm. That, that That's a way of doing the intricate engineering of... Um, how this thing should work and it's all very necessary and it's something that you know is fun of itself to do but there's this other question of but what should it do Mm. Uh, and i like to do both Uh, so i I do uh, software engineering and human computer interaction um, rather than just one or the other Mm. and being an academic seems to be one of the few ways that you can do that so speaking of creating things Mm -hmm. i mean i get your regular run-of-the-mill programming languages like, say, Python or mm-hmm. HTML or something, I might not be able to speak them, but I get that it's, you know, take this file, do this thing with it. But I know there's this whole other level of uh, creating things that involve things like machine learning and yep. artificial intelligence and stuff that I can't visualize as a, you know, set, set of instructions that you give a computer. It, are, do they work in that way? Or is it a bit more on the gumbly? So some do, some don't. So, I mean, there's some stuff that's around machine learning that is designed for the fact that not everyone that wants to do machine learning is a programmer. And mm-hmm. so there's lots of things that will let you uh, put things together in visual ways to describe your, your, mm. your machine learning pipeline, uh, which is all very great. Um, there's the other side, which is the if you're very much into the engineering of it. Uh, so I particularly like a language called Scala, um, and there's an awful lot of um, data applications out there that are written in Scala. Mm. But it's not because of its machine learning. It's because of the things about the way the data comes in. So, for instance, if you've got massive amounts of data and it doesn't all fit on one computer and so you've got to distribute it across loads of computer, or if uh, if you're dealing with something that's moving very fast, um, suppose, you know, you're wanting to do machine learning across what everyone's watching on Netflix or one of those things, Mm. then you've got events pelting at your system all the time. And these languages are very good at dealing with that, where you where you can't actually write it as a set of instructions because the stuff that you're wanting to instruct over kind of isn't there. And there's all this uh, other machinery that needs to go on behind the scenes of, uh, but this is how I need to change it as stuff is coming in, or this is how I need to distribute the computation across a lot of different machines. And so there are these languages that pick up ideas of uh, what they call functional programming, um, which is um, actually explicitly not about a sequence of instructions, um, but is more like mathematical functions. Mm. So if you consider um, sine x plus cos y, 
um, well, those aren't instructions. There's nothing to say that you do one of them before the other one. They're mm. things that you have to evaluate that will give you an answer. Yeah. And um, they, they, they borrow aspects of, uh, of that. So I, I say borrow aspects of that. There are pure functional programming languages that, um, that don't let you have side effects, mm. that um, basically everything is a conversation that gives you an answer. And you can sequence things, but you can sequence, you sequence them in interesting ways. Scala is this kind of nice one that get, tries to give you a lot of the power of that, but actually gives you all the, all the escape patches that if you want to write something as just do this, do that, then do the other, mm. you can. Um, and that seems to mean that it's been used to create a lot of these different um, systems for doing data processing and data engineering, uh, as it's called. Um, and so that then means that when I want to do machine stuff, I can kind of do it in Scala, which is quite nice. Um, though if you're looking at um, a lot of machine learning, people work in other things like R and Python and mm. that as well. So there's lots of different languages that you can do these things yeah. in. But. I feel like for the general public, unfortunately, their most, I don't know, relevant example of machine learning they could think of is there's memes you see where people say, I fed this robot a whole bunch of uh, friends scripts and then got it to write an episode of friends oh, or yeah. fitted a bunch of pictures of a peacock and then got it to draw a peacock is that <laughs> is that a fair representation of machine learning so unfortunately for the i mean for the public there's the stuff that we're probably famous for not us personally thankfully uh but is being the great villains of the modern age i mean it used to be that uh say 10 years ago everyone was like oh google and facebook are connecting the world and all yeah. this fun stuff now, of course, it's like Facebook were responsible for electing Trump for stealing your data and <laughs> <laughs> targeting all sorts of things. But um, so, um, in, it, at least in the public eye, that is probably one of the most famous occasions of, uh, of machine learning. Um, the, the actual stuff that Cambridge Analytica were doing, uh, there's questions as to how complicated the stuff they were actually doing really was because the things that were having an electrical effect tended to be things like postcode targeting that you could already do. Mm. Um, but the um, but in terms of being able to do stuff like look at who your friends are and what you've liked and disliked, mm. and therefore infer lots of things about your life, mm. um, that is fairly common out there in, in companies, not in academic research. Uh, in academia, there's lots of things in terms of uh, things like computer vision stuff. How can we learn to identify a particular kind of weed that we want to target from a drone? Mm. And I think you've talked to uh, these people that do, do those sorts of things. Um, there's other ones that I'm interested in. So a lot of stuff I do is in the education technology space. And so there's lots of questions on how can we tell... Um, uh, if you like, where a, where a student is in their educational journey, how mm -hmm. best to help them, uh, what advice to give them when we're trying to give them ever in, ever more complex tasks in their educational journey. So you mm -hmm. know, we've got a uh, a subject I teach where I pitch all of the students onto the same project so that it feels like it being part of a distributed software company. Mm -hmm. um, and so then you've got these students all trying to work with each other trying to grapple with difficult bits of technology, each other's code, things like this. And so one of the questions I've got is, okay, how can I use stuff on machine learning to detect how the students are going in working with each other's code? Mm. Um, so far, EdTech's done a lot of things with uh, learning an analytics. What are the predictors of you're likely to fail the unit at the end? But often that's coming off data that's 
uh, most available, such as um, how how often you're watching the videos and what you got right and wrong in quizzes and things like that. This is uh, I, I'm, I'm quite keen to get down to a bit more um, data that's about the work, so mm. data that's looking at in that case the the, the code that students are committing and mm. what branches they're committing it to in the version repository and the, the 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 way that they're interacting with their peers and 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 things like that. And those are quite multifaceted. It's, it's very hard to come up with, well, this is the rules. If they've done this, then give them this piece of advice mm-hmm. because there's just there's so much going on there. Whereas applying machine learning, where you can take an awful lot of inputs and train it on an awful lot of examples, and it can come up with this thing that involves an awful lot of different conditions and weights across all of the different mm-hmm. inputs to work out what's going on. That seems like it should be a, mm. a viable approach. But then am I right in assuming that sometimes these can behave in unexpected ways or have well, they can consequences. Oh, this is the this is the the Microsoft Tay thing, is it? Or, or, the what? <laughs> oh, sorry. No, okay. I I didn't know if you'd already. So some time ago, uh, Microsoft released a chatbot mm. onto Twitter. And apparently within a day, people had trained it to be a racist neo-Nazi <laughs> <laughs> by the things that they threw at it. Yeah. And so there, there is this, this, this question in machine learning of, but what is it learning? Yeah. And so you, they discovered that when you throw something up on Twitter where people, as well as you know, there not being not, some not very nice stuff out there, people can also be a bit prankster-ish. Yeah. Uh, people can throw things and make it learn really awkward stuff. <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, even even Netflix has hit this one. So supposedly the, the uh, as well as using a lot of machine learning to work out what sorts of shows they like, to know what categories to show you on the screen as to what videos to pick, um, they've also been using it to change the, um, the poster image that they, they use for the show. Um, I've, I've been wondering about this actually, and why you know, my designated survivor icon looks different every now and again. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I mean, they have a bunch of them, and it it kind of hadn't really been, you know, it, everyone kind of thought it was random until this curious kind of mini scandal in the tech world came up. Um, that it turned out, and this came up on Twitter again, that uh, a, a a black person in the US posted this thing saying. Is, is anyone else noticing that all the posters that they're seeing contain black people for the images? <laughs> and uh, lots of people were going, yes, yes, I have noticed that. And so, uh, it, you know, it, it looks as if the machine learning algorithm, I don't know the in, ins and outs of this, but the, the <laughs> thing that seems most likely to me um, is that because it is learning from the viewing habits, and uh, there's a tendency of, of people go, oh, I didn't know they were in that, and go and play it. Mm. And so it's picked up on their preferences to what they watch. Yeah. And so it started to reflect some things that maybe you would have preferred that it didn't learn, that maybe it didn't, you know, <laughs> okay, this particular viewer might be slightly more likely to watch things that contain black people. Well, that doesn't really mean that you necessarily want to suddenly, for all of your shows, just show them posters of the black people in the, in the, in the, in the movie. Um, but uh, but that's slightly dangerous territory to go uh, to go on because uh, I, I don't know the details of it. But I, I, I but it's just my suspicion that um, that what has happened there is that the machine learning. Um, has trained on something that they hadn't expected it to, mm. uh, and possibly 
isn't one that they would necessarily, if they'd been thinking about it, have wanted it to. Mm. In terms of how machine learning works, once a machine learning thing spits out a result saying, here's what you want to watch or yeah. uh, whatever, can the the person that built it then look back at the process at which it's made the decision or is it a bit of a... So this is, yeah. I mean, this is actually where we're getting kind of in, towards the stuff I try and research, uh, mm. which is quite nice. Um, so uh, not as much as I think they should be able to. So I'm mean, part of the reason I got into educational technology. I got very interested in how machines and people can co-reason, how they can think together. Mm. Um, that very often this is the answer isn't good enough. You want to know, okay, well, why is that the answer? What would I need to change to make this other thing that I want to be the answer be the answer? Mm. Um, usually we're wanting to find things out to understand the world uh, so that we can be um, the agents that are making decisions rather mm. than just for uh, some all-knowing oracle to say, this is how it is, yeah. and therefore you must. <laughs> um, and... That carries a whole lot of things with it. That carries a lot of things in terms of how uh, you make the decision. And so, for instance, where you've got um, uh, deep learning networks, so one of the things that's quite common at the moment, where you have a neural network that has several layers to it. You put in some data and uh, quite a lot of, uh, of data and answers start to come out. Uh, but yeah, you've got very little idea of what's going on inside it uh, unless you do some quite serious explora exploration. So, you know, if you're wanting something that can detect the difference between uh, a Monet painting and uh, mm. a Rembrandt, say, um, then it's going to learn all sorts of characteristics along the way. But you're probably going to want to know, well, what are those characteristics? Mm. And so there, there's there's some interesting techniques that uh, people have used where they instead they start going the other way through the network and say, well, OK, let's ask it to generate what it thinks the archetypical Monet paper looks like if mm. I show it a banana. Uh, run this through your network and then keep modifying the picture and running it back through the network until you're happy that that is now a Monet banana. <laughs> uh, and... And you can get some really quite pretty pictures and there's loads of generators out there for doing this. Um, but that's still not told you what's happening in between each of the layers. And so sometimes you do other things where you'll slice the layers and you'll take the first three layers of this network and apply it to this other pro uh, problem. Um, so people have discovered that well often the first thing it wants to learn is things like how to find edges in pictures mm -hmm. in the first few layers, how to find uh, particular common patterns and contrasts. Um, that's all stuff, though, for machine learning people. And I'm kind of interested in that. Well, what if you're not a, a machine learning academic and you're wanting mm. to use this stuff? And so one of the first things I, do, I was doing back in my PhD was, um, was actually to do with mathematical proofs. And there's these automated theorem provers where you write mathematical proofs like you would write a program. There's a correlation between a program and a proof. Um, and... You can write these programs to prove things, uh, but to do so, and they call them proof assistants, but it means that you also both need to be an expert in the logic, higher order logic you're working in, and the proof environment. And so they tend to be these proof assistants that, well, someone once told me, if you can't prove it on paper, you've got no chance for the proof assistant. <laughs> I, mean, it's a, I was in a human-computer interaction group, and I was going, oh, that's an interesting meaning of the word assistant then, isn't mm. it? Um, uh, but so... 
in the state in that case, I was interested in getting students who are doing first-year discrete mathematics at universities. How could they interact with a proof assistant and do the typical things that we ask uh, first years, proving things about the Fibonacci sequence, etc. And so for that, I came up with this kind of drag-and-drop programming environment, a little bit like Scratch, but before Scratch, but for constructing uh, proofs. Mm. And we managed to do it. We managed to get um, students to be able to prove things about uh, number theory uh, with very, very little training rather than requiring a PhD to do this. And part of that was that there were two models going on. There's the back-end, very detailed model that is how the proof assistant sees it. And there's the the front-end model, which is, okay, this is how I want you to think about it, that goes to the student, and then there's a, a layer doing translation between them and trying to make that layer reasonably clean mm-hmm. to, be able to, to be, able, be able to manage that. And it worked, but it did also show all sorts of interesting things, such as there's this question on, if you're doing a proof, what steps don't you have to write down? If you've got um, A plus B on one side, do you have to do the write down the next line where you've reversed it, say, B plus A? Mm. Or is that trivial enough that you can skip that step? And so we had this idea that, well, what we'll do is there's a thing called a simplifier that's in the proof assistant. And we'll say any of the rules that are in the simplifier, because they're all things like A plus, plus is commutative, so A plus B is B plus A. Mm. And um, we will say you don't have to mention any of those rules. Trouble is, there's 1,500 of those rules. <laughs> you can't <laughs> say to someone, you don't have to use, to mention any of these 1,500 rules. Mm. Instead, you have to go the other way, and you have to start saying, well, here are some of the ones you're going to need that you do have to mention. Mm. And that starts hinting towards the answer. Um, and so you get these uh, kind of curious connections between the differences between how the model that you come up with a backend thinks about mm. things, where to a computer, 1,500 rules, so what? I can remember 1,500 rules, that's, that's, that's small data. Mm. Um, and a person where, you know, we, we, I can hold in my head about seven or so. <laughs> uh, the, you know, if, if I'm talking about short term, uh, I've just seen something and says, don't use these seven. But if you, if you start showing me 13 or 14, I'll forget one. Mm. Um, and uh, And starting to try and uh yeah try and build that picture of um the because you're, you're sort of teaching two things at once because you're, you're teaching here's the problem and how i want you to think about the problem but you're also having to teach a certain amount about how the assistant thinks about the problem mm-hmm. uh, and trying to convey that in a way that doesn't then add a add a learning burden so this is like a Next level human-computer interaction. I feel like for a while there, having good human-computer interaction was having nice user interface, (laughs) user experience type stuff. But then you are still burdened with things like nonsense error messages that people that are in separate languages that people don't speak (laughs) and things like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll always be burdened by those (laughs) because... We're still burdened by bugs in programs. You know, there, there, there's yeah. there's two phases to programming: there's putting bugs in and taking bugs out. If you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but yes, there there are some kind of grand challenges in uh, human computer interaction. I think one of them is that uh, now that we're going to things that involve very very complex models around machine learning, and uh, you know, one way of describing machine learning. Uh, is where even the programmer doesn't know what it's doing. 
um, because okay, the programmer wrote the code, but then, mm. they, then they've trained this on all these examples, and it's actually learned what the conditions are from the examples. The programmer hasn't learnt the mm. conditions from those examples because the programmer has just taken your bucket of examples, thrown them at the program, <laughs> uh, and, and let it do its thing and looked at the results coming out the other end. Um, uh, and so, yeah, so when we're entering this world where um, not only does no one person understand the architecture in the entire thing, that's been true for a long time. There's lots of programs out there that are too big for one engineer to keep it all in their heads. Uh, but now there's parts of it that no engineers know exactly mm. what it's doing in terms of what it's learned and it, it becomes a thing that we have to probe uh, how to make that usable to people so mm. they can co-reason with it interact with it uh, make it useful to them rather than a danger to them uh, how we deal with these um, unintended consequences of things learning things that you'd really rather they didn't learn yeah. um, and that's fine if you're teaching something to look at pictures of bananas yeah it's very different if you're going to start applying this to say i don't know self-driving cars <laughs> or yeah. things like that yeah i mean self-driving cars that it turns out that i am one of the people that thwarts self-driving cars because one of their hardest challenges is bicycles uh, so because I, I'm a person that cycles to work and uh, so apparently I'm one of the hardest things for self-driving cars to deal with and uh, so bicycles they look really different from different angles mm. they behave in unpredictable ways because mm. as anyone that's had to drive past cyclists in a, in a traffic jam knows <laughs> we, we, we get frustrated we, drive, we cycle up the inside of cars we cut through traffic so we we occasionally think oh, at this stage i can hop off and pretend i'm a pedestrian yeah and do all sorts of uh, of things like that and yeah so they they, mm. they become um from a technical level really quite hard mm. hard for them to de- uh, to deal with um fortunately the, the ones they've had in california they, they must have found a, a way of dealing with this or maybe they're just telling them not to go on the roads that have lots of cyclists on them um but uh, the accidents they've been having haven't been to do mm. with cyclists but yeah. But I mean, from a, I guess, an ethical point of view, if we're dealing with something we've created that we don't quite understand, how do we know when it's something we can look at and go, oh, that's neat, as opposed to something where we go, oh, that's Frankenstein's monster? <laughs> <laughs> Will we only know when it, once it's too late? <laughs> so um, on, on the ethics one, we're sort of getting into the... There's, there's two sides of it. So the, the example that comes up with self-driving cars, uh, and there was a BBC article on it for a while, was so you've got the situation where the car can't avoid an accident. Mm. And if it does this accident, that person's going to get hit. And if it does that accident, say mm. maybe those two people are going to get hit. And can it take, um, can it take the action that is going to uh, injure, injure fewer people but would injure someone who would not have otherwise been injured? Mm. Um, those are philosophical conundrums that have been around for a long time and that uh, we could get away without talking about because people do them. Mm. Um, but they're also ones that actually don't get programmed in um, because usually the algorithms that you end up teaching the the car about, you end up trying to, to weight it to maximise its space and keep away from this, that and the other. Mm. And uh, it, there's not going to be so many occasions when it's making that decision explicitly. It's more likely that those things are going to happen implicitly because of some other mm. routine 
that that that, that that's going on. Um, but so it, it's got this this thing that it's it's both making us face up to ethical conundrums that previously we could muddle away and just mm. go, oh yes, isn't that hard, <laughs> and and hope we never face. Um, and also the fact that then, well, actually, these these these, these things aren't directly mm. written in there right now. Maybe they should be, but also then maybe how do you get how do you get it to spot that situation to even know that it is making that decision? Mm-hmm. So speaking of ethics and, and Netflix, important question: Do you watch Black Mirror? I do. Yes. <laughs> It's fabulous. <laughs> it's it is a, terrifying, but I fabulous. I feel like it's it's a really important thing to watch because, like the examples they give of you know, how technology could speculatively go wrong aren't a hundred years in the future. They're maybe five yeah, years in the future. Future <laughs> quite close, and it's yeah. Um, they, and some of it borrows quite heavily. So the one on the the one that was perhaps the least likely um with the the one with the robot dog that was mm. shooting the um uh the the the, the timed explosives into people <laughs> um, um the that one i mean it's the least likely but it kind of looked to someone in technology one of the scariest just because they based the dog off these ones from boston dynamics yeah. which is this robots company that's out there and that mm. builds things that do move in very similar ways and it yeah. kind of just had that familiar feeling of oh i've seen that rip- ah, what's he doing <laughs> and we're making little steps into unmanned combat in that in the real world and, yeah. and we are um but we're the the, the 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 ones in Black Mirror are some of them are unfortunately possible. So things like the one that was over the parents wanting to watch everything mm. to do with their child's life. I mean that's a um, a fantastic version of a problem that we've got now. Of well, what are my kids doing on the internet? Mm. And there are all of these internet dangers out yeah. there. And how closely do I monitor my kid? Do I try and log everything that they've done on my wife on the wi-fi router so they can know all that or is that encroaching on their space in a way that shouldn't necessarily be the case because Mm. there's there's things that we would as parents feel that we ought to crack down on that actually no one as a teenager probably yeah yeah um uh, so so there's those ones that seem very very realistic but there's other ones where it's um heading off into things around unmanned con- combat and trying to hack our decision-making decision that kind of aren't so likely because um, we don't build computers and machine learning systems just for the sheer beauty of building one. We build them for a particular purpose. Mm. And so this ends up meaning that at the top of the tree uh, always end up being what we built this thing for. Um, and so there, there kind of isn't an occasion where we're taking the top level decision making out of the loop. Mm. There's occasions where we can do terrible things where you take lower level decision making out of the loop. And so the automated combat thing, you know, there's the question of where you've now got an automated system that's in some combat area trying to make a decision on is that a civilian is that a um is that a i forgot the american term for it the the the, the, the combatants that don't wear or whatever <laughs> and so yeah so you you've got situations where you've got computers making life or death decisions and we we, we feel somewhat uncomfortable about that but you're not 
really going to get the situation that you see in some of the Black Mirrors where it's trying to uh, convince... Uh, so there was one that was about the thing that ch- changed soldiers' eyesight so that they would see the en- enemy as terrible monsters and they turn out not to be terrible monsters, etc. Um, those sorts of ones I kind of can't really see happening because we, we we don't actually tend to make these decisions to try and hack people and make people do things that actually they would normally be horrified by. Um, we usually end up making these decisions out of slightly mundane things of well we want to take some things out of the loop to try and make this thing more efficient and Mm. we can have horrible unintended consequences but we don't often have horrible intended consequences (laughs) you know what i mean yeah i feel like because of where technology is now and the fact it's advanced so fast that lots of people just can't keep up with it more and more people are feeling like oh skynet's just around the corner type of thing as someone that dabbles in this stuff do, yep. you, how, do you sort of roll your eyes at that and get sick of uh, scaremongering? Or um, is it all fun games? <laughs> well, it, it's, I think there's things that we're... The things that we're discovering are problematic are often uh, slightly more mundane things and more personal things. Mm. So um, we, we've already hit the one of the lack of forgettability. That things that... Uh, in the past would have been things that, you know, you said with uh, said as a teenager, but no one mm. has the capacity to remember it, and so it's gone. But now, you know, it's out on the internet. Yeah. It's there forever, and people are dogged by their past tweets, their past yeah. Facebook posts, their past etc. Um, but at the moment, those things are even... They're still being found manually. Mm. You can kind of easily hit the point, though, that uh, these things are getting found automatically, and it's kind of hunting out the dirt on you, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Um, and and, and the, those sorts of things end up uh, throwing up um, questions of, um, you know, that you, you can end up with things that are accidentally uh, accidentally quite oppressive in terms of, I, w- I always have the thought that we, we want to make sure that uh, people have the freedom to be just having a really bad day. <laughs> you know what I mean? That <laughs> um, uh, there, there, there are occasions when people will... Um, you know, swear at their cat, swear at traffic. Yeah. The, 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 the things I've said to, tra- to cars and inanimate <laughs> objects in in in, uh, in traffic jams in Brisbane, I certainly would not want broadcast on the internet. And <laughs> if Siri in my car happened to pick that up, and, yeah. um, I, I would not want it learning from it or anything like that. Um, but so th- those things, they're 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 not as they're not as high level as. Skynet, but they're yeah. still things that affect yeah. ordinary lives. Um, the the one that was around, um, you know, the, the Cambridge Analytica thing. Um, there's questions as to how really effective it was or wasn't, uh, or what they were really doing with it. There's the fact that, that what they were doing with the data was theoretically that was what you did with Facebook data back then. It was kind of little mm. bits. You know, yes, you're actually finding a kind of a problem with what these things are built for. Um, but that's had all sorts of pernicious effects in terms of people's trust in democracy, people's trust mm. in where um, where these systems are saying, people's trust in uh, in the engineers that build these systems. Because eventually, you know, your your feed is driven by an algorithm that's mm. written by a, a person at Facebook who may well be an engineer, much like me. I, I know engineers that are at Facebook. Uh, I don't know which bits of it they work on, but. Um, um, but suddenly, the, these engineers, if you like, have the 
the responsibility of maintaining society almost mm. landing upon them, uh, which programmers historically might not have had. Um, and so they, they, there's those sorts of questions, but they, and they become important, but they become important long before it becomes Skynet. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's, you know, we, we are a way off that sort of level of yeah. evil sophistication, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But is it useful having these sort of black mirror thought experiments just so we but don't... tremendously fun. <laughs> <laughs> but for society's benefit and all as well, right? <laughs> um, yeah, and so technology, it's always borrowed from science fiction. So there, there's not that many uh inventions that you can't see in sci-fi I mean, you know one of the classic examples these days is you know we wander around carrying ipads you go and fire up star trek next generation from the <laughs> 1980s and yeah. you'll see them carrying around these things that look a lot like ipads um and okay those came from um research centers xerox park that were looking at things you know in terms of if you had these devices you, well you might want ones that are the size of sticky notes ones that are the size of a piece of paper etc mm. and so these things come you know, there, there, there's this circular loop between technology research and science fiction, and then people going, "Oh, yeah, that's really cool." <laughs> um, but these stories are a fabulous way of imagining these futures. And okay, we imagine them in uh, technicolor, if you mm. like. We, we, we don't imagine the little form. We don't imagine the. Um, uh, we don't so much write science fiction stories that are about the Cambridge Analytica scandal, say. Yeah. Uh, we, we end up writing them instead about Skynet and things like that. But they still kind of show up issues that we do care about. And, mm. Yeah. So maybe then, so we need more positive science fiction out there to make sure we drive technology in the right direction as, as opposed to less dystopian stuff where we go, oh look, robot killer dogs let's well, we, give that a crack <laughs> Well we do, but that's, we've needed that for a long time too so the, oh, the this, one of the funny stories was Asimov uh, when he wrote I, Robots and these series of stories, he was motivated by the fact that in the, the 60s B-movie era mm. whenever you saw a robot it was basically Frankenstein's monster taking over the world, <laughs> killing its creator. And so he wanted to write these stories that weren't about that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, and of course, then in the 90s, they made the, the movie of iRobot, which was about a robot trying to take over the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I read the book after the movie. It was very confused. <laughs> um, they, they, they had some quite good good ideas in there. But yeah, so there, there, there has always been a need for positive visions of, mm. of, of the future and there are lots of them out there uh, but I, th I think it is just something around uh, our love of fiction that uh, we, we, we like there to be tension in stories and so yeah. we, we, we uh, in fiction we can go to the dark corners in a way that we don't want to go to yeah. them in reality <laughs> you know what I mean well we've been going for almost an hour and barely got to any of it questions i wanted to get to and oh, you've sorry. hardly spoken about your own work anymore but you know <laughs> skynet <laughs> sorry rambling but, you know, maybe we should just do this again another time and, and sure next time a, a scary uh, google voice demo comes out i can come and pick your brains about what it means sure. and stuff <laughs> <That'd be great. laughs> but if people want to find out more about your research do you have a website i do have a website it's wbillingsley.com mm -hmm. um uh the 
I realise my surname is not always terribly easy to spell, so you might want to just grab that off the off the text on yeah, the page. We'll stick it on the, the episode description. Yep. And uh, and on Twitter, I am the equally hard to spell W Billingsley. All right, sounds good. Cool. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. We'll we'll have to do this again soon. Thank you so much. All right, and thank you guys for listening. Make sure to check out InSituScience.com and we're on social media at InSituScience. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.